The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey everyone, it's another crazy week in America and another episode of Lever Time, aka the Comedy Central roast of the Joe Biden administration. I'm your host, David Sirota. With me, as always, is producer Frank. What's up, Frank? Not much, David. How you doing today? You know, um, I'm living, just living. I'm through another uh, insane week here in the good old U.S. of A. And I'm pretty psyched about this show because we're going to be talking, taking a trip to the movies, a topic that I have been doing a lot of research on, a trip to the movies, sort of. With the massive success of Top Gun Maverick, we're going to be going into the unholy alliance between Hollywood and the Pentagon, something that I've referred to and others have referred to as the military entertainment complex. I can't wait for that. Then... We're going to be discussing a piece uh, that The Lever published this past week about how the Biden administration is reaffirming a price hike for Medicare premiums. And then we're going to look at where all of that extra money is going. I'll give you a hint. It's not going towards anything all that good. It's going towards some of Joe Biden's donors. And we'll be talking about that national trend of corporate interests essentially buying Democratic primaries across the entire country by flooding campaigns with cash to crush progressive candidates, like, for instance, Nina Turner. They tried to do it to Summer Lee. But here's the thing. It's not just at the congressional level. It's at the local level, too. We're going to be talking with one candidate uh, who is facing that right now in a very classic race, putting those two things together. I should remind you, this week, our paid subscribers will get a bonus segment of the best moments from our very first episode of Lever Live, where myself, the Lever's Julia Rock, and producer Frank took questions from our listeners live on the air. Uh, you can find all of that at levernews.com. Uh, you, that's where you can subscribe to our newsletter. You can find our live show uh, and you can become a, a paying subscriber to get all of our bonus content. Uh, I thought the live show, by the way, Frank, went really well last uh, this week. I was, I was a little nervous about it. Oh, I had so much fun because that live show, it's, it's much lower stakes than this podcast, you know? <laughs> This is the high stakes stuff. This is the high stakes. I mean, well, this is like, you know, it's like highly produced. It's edited. I got to, we got to do all this work on it. Whereas the live show is like, you know, we're going to take questions from the audience. So like, you have to kind of like release control in that scenario. I was a little nervous taking that first call, the first couple of calls. Now, granted, I've been on talk radio for four or five years here in Denver, Colorado, about a decade ago. And I love taking calls. But those first few callers, I was a little nervous I was going to get flamethrowered, but it didn't, it, it didn't happen that way. So, so I, I hope everybody who's hearing this will join us at our next Lever Live. I should mention they're Mondays at uh, 7 p.m. Eastern. Let's turn, though, to uh, here to our first topic, that topic I said I was really excited about, the military-industrial complex. I feel the need, the need for speed. Ow! The Pentagon infiltrating Hollywood. It sounds like an insane conspiracy theory, doesn't it, Frank? Uh, 
I mean, of all of the things that I know that the Pentagon has infiltrated, this one actually isn't super surprising to me. Well, it's it's very real, as shown by the new film Top Gun Maverick. That blockbuster was the latest film made in close collaboration with military leaders. And when I say made, that's what I mean. I want to take you on a little history tour here. Since the Army helped make the very first Academy Award-winning film, it was called Wings, uh, about 100 years ago, the military has been working hand-in-hand with Hollywood to help make pro-military films and television shows and effectively deter the making of movies that question the military and question militarism as an ideology. I began reporting on this military entertainment complex for my 2011 book, Back to Our Future. It's a hugely powerful but invisible propaganda system that really almost no one knows about. And the way it works is pretty simple. Each branch of the military has a so-called film office, like the one that Ronald Reagan worked at way back when he was a pro-union Democrat in the 40s. These offices offer movie studios access to bases, aircraft carriers, planes, all sorts of other military hardware. But there's a big catch. In exchange for that access, studios are forced to submit their scripts to be line edited so that the films are pro-military. See, that's the crazy fucked up part that I didn't know or didn't anticipate was that like how much creative control the Pentagon actually has on the content that enters these films. Line editing. We're not talking about general, like, giving you notes. We're talking about line editing. Now, I can hear some folks who are listening to this saying, dude, that sounds like conspiracy theory. There's no way. Come on, Sirota. I want you to listen to this 2006 PBS report that explains exactly how it works. Listen to this. Entertainment industry journalist David L. Robb is the author of Operation Hollywood, a book that critically examines the relationship between the Department of Defense and the film and television industry. He's most concerned about the military's policy of script review and its power to demand changes in characters and plot points in return for cooperation. If you want the military's assistance, you have to give them five copies of your script. They review the script. They make changes to the script to to make it conform to the kind of film that they want to see. Most Americans have no idea that the content of the films and TV shows that they're watching are being influenced by military censors, that the military or the government is telling filmmakers what to say and what not to say. The Navy's Robert Anderson, who reviews 30 to 50 feature scripts a year, acknowledges his office's production clout. If you want full cooperation from the Navy, we have a considerable amount of power because we we have it's our ships. It's our it's our cooperation. It's and, your stuff. And, and until the script is 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 uh, in a in a form that we can that we can approve, then we don't you know the production doesn't go forward. This demand for line editing has created a powerful dynamic in Hollywood. Getting access to military hardware at free or reduced rate prices is effectively a huge government subsidy to studios that agree to the military's propaganda demands. And in some cases, the Pentagon is even going out and soliciting movie projects now. Now, on the flip side, being denied access means movies often don't get made because studios know 
they would be much more expensive to make without the military's help. The kinds of line edits we're talking about here, which, which let's be clear, are not disclosed to viewers. They run the gamut. For instance, in the 1983 film, The Right Stuff, the Pentagon agreed to provide access to its facilities in exchange for the removal of cursing between the pilots, all to make sure the film would be seen by potential enlistees. They didn't want it to get an R rating. In the original Top Gun, another example, Time Magazine reported that Goose's death was changed from a mid-air collision to an ejection scene because, quote, the Navy complained that too many pilots were crashing in the movie. They didn't want to scare pilots away from enlisting in the military. But it's gotten way more insidious in recent years. This story boggles my mind. You have to hear this story. The story of the 2000 film 13 Days. You ever read that book, Frank? It's a great book. No, but I saw, I remember watching the movie, I think in like middle school, <laughs> they were like, this is going to explain the Cuban Missile Crisis right, to you. Right. Yeah. And the, mm -hmm. the, the book was RFK's book called 13 Days about the Cuban Missile Crisis. So get this, the Pentagon denied access to its facilities for that film because military leaders objected to the script's dialogue between the Joint Chiefs of Staff and President John F. Kennedy. Specifically, they didn't like how bellicose the generals seemed. The generals wanted basically a, a war. They feared it would make military leaders look like warmongers, which back then, some of them like Curtis LeMay really were. Now, here's the incredible part. Pentagon officials stuck to their rejection. They said to the filmmakers, you, you can't access our facilities. We're not going to cooperate with you. Even though the screenwriters provided them with the White House audio tapes, proving that the screenplay's dialogue accurately represented the exchanges that occurred. The Pentagon also demanded, this is crazy, the omission of a scene about a U-2 plane shot down over Cuba, even though the screenwriters literally provided the Pentagon with JFK's own condolence letter to the widow of that U-2 pilot. In other words, the Pentagon denied access to public property because the filmmakers were accurately depicting the history of the military. Thank God we don't have propaganda in this country, you know, like <laughs> no state media. We're, we're a propaganda free nation. And that's something we can all be proud of. I, I mean, this stuff, it just goes, I mean, and then it gets, listen to this example. One more example here. 2012 Zero Dark Thirty, the Pentagon had previously withdrawn support for Catherine Bigelow, the director, her, her prior film, Hurt Locker which I thought was, was a great movie questioning the Iraq war. This time around, Bigelow worked hand in hand with military officials and produced a film that effectively asserted that the CIA's torture regime worked to extract information to go get the terrorists, even though that's not true. This was such an outrageous depiction that a bipartisan group of senators slammed it. They wrote a letter to the studio calling it misinformation. They should have sent the letter to the Pentagon or the CIA. Now, here's the thing. For its part, the Pentagon is totally open about this. This is, uh, this is the part I love, too. One recently surfaced memo said that Navy officials worked with the original Top Gun because the film, quote, completed the rehabilitation of the military's image, which had been savaged by the Vietnam War. The head of the military's film office told Variety magazine, quote, the main criteria we use for approval is how could the proposed production benefit the military? Could it help in recruiting? And is it in sync with present policy? Ultimately, here's the upshot. Why does this matter? 
Because for every anti-war film there is, this is why you have 50 or 100 pro-war, pro-military, pro-militarist films. Even Tom Cruise, Maverick himself, once recognized this problem. Uh, this, this, is, this is incredible. Four years after the release of the original Top Gun, he was starring in Oliver Stone's Born on the Fourth of July, which had obviously a much different message about the military and war. And he told Playboy magazine at the time, quote, some people felt that Top Gun was a right wing film to promote the Navy and lots of kids loved it. But I want the kids to know that that's not the way war is. The Top Gun was just an amusement park ride, a fun film with a PG-13 rating that was not supposed to be reality. That's why, Cruz said, I didn't go on and make Top Gun 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. That would have been irresponsible. <laughs> well, that was, what, like 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Yeah, Tom Cruise has changed a lot since then, I think is, <laughs> is, is, is safe to say. He certainly has. Because now with the Pentagon's full support, he's making that Top Gun sequel. Since the first Top Gun... And since I reported my 2011 book about the military entertainment complex, this propaganda system has become even more insidious. And to help explain how it works in practice, we're joined now by University of Georgia professor Roger Stahl, whose new documentary, a must-see documentary on this, is called Theaters of War. Hey, Roger, thanks for being here. It's great to be here with you, David. Thank you. Um, let's start with Top Gun. How involved was the U.S. military in making in the making of the new Top Gun? Uh, uh, and if you've got some background on how involved it was in the old Top Gun, that would be great, too. Yeah, we have uh, some documentation from the new Top Gun Maverick. It's been uh, kind of a tough slog with Freedom of Information Act requests with this one because the Navy in particular has been extremely guarded as to what kind of documents they want to release. And so we put in, you know, dozens of requests with them so far and really have gotten only the production assistance agreement and a few emails. But from that, we can piece together a kind of timeline of how, how it worked uh, and what kind of assistance they were granted. I mean, it's clear from the film, obviously, that it was F-18s and aircraft carriers and, and access to bases and, and the normal suite of uh, equipment and, and uh, access that, that is usually granted to filmmakers. Um, so we have emails that suggest uh, uh, the, the process by which they went to make those kinds of things available. And that's not that interesting. What is really interesting from the documents, though, is uh, probably the production assistance agreement, which uh, is the contract that filmmakers and television producers sign with the military uh, in order to kind of make that trade. It's a formal agreement. This is uh, done after all the script change requests have gone to the producers and after they've made those script change requests to the satisfaction of the uh, military. And so uh, at that point, uh, what the production assistance agreement suggests is that the military gets a final screening of, of the film to make sure everything's in place. And in particular, they said they would get the opportunity to weave in key talking points. This is their exact language, to weave in key talking points. That's a direct quote, key talking points. That's right, from the actual contract that the Top Gun producers, Bruckheimer and crew, signed with the, the, the Pentagon. 
And uh, we don't know exactly what those key, key talking points were. Uh, we have a sense of them from what, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen the movie or not, but it's clear that there are certain themes with regard to recruiting, with regard to U.S. foreign policy that that are, are really prevalent in the film, particularly, you know, a, a key talking point that comes up over and over again, which we suspect was probably on that list, was that, you know, it's not the plane, it's the pilot, which shows up about five times in the film. And of course, the, uh, yeah, the Air Force and the, and the, and the Navy are, are interested in sort of managing recruitment expectations when it comes to drones and the fact that, you know, you're going to sign up as a pilot, you might not be flying. So this is, this is one of the things that they're managing with that film. So folks are going to be listening to this and think, okay, look, Top Gun is a, a, a military movie. Uh, there's lots of military movies. Um, these movies, uh, are, in theory, should reflect accurately what uh, what the military is like. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. <laughs> I think a lot of people might say, well, what's the big deal? Like, you know, the Top Gun guys are talking to the military. The military is helping them make it more accurate. Why should anyone be upset about this? Why Why is this controversial? What What What's the deal? Why Why should anybody be worried about this? Sure. Well, accuracy is, of course, in the charge, the actual directives that the military is supposed to abide by. You know, this is one of the things in addition to recruiting and and giving a sense of, uh, you know, the proper role of the military. If you look at those documents, the directives, this is what they are supposed to be doing in that office. And I would say if you look through the script change requests that, that you see for any particular film, about 80% of them are geared toward accurately representing the military and and I would say are legitimate. But about 20% are what you'd call uh, sort of ideological or political in nature. They're the public relations aspect of those script changes. And those are the sort of problematic changes that I think most people, uh, if they didn't know, if they knew better, would uh, would, would question them. Um, so so, you're, so what have, you're saying is that there are changes that are like, Okay, you have to make the plane, when you're talking about the plane's engine, you need to change it to be, uh, you know, the Johnson rod instead of the, you know, <laughs> you know the, the sprocket or whatever. And that's, to that's totally fine. But what, what the other 20% you're saying are the military is going through line by line of a script to change the message of movies to reflect the message that the military wants. That's exactly right. So typically it's about three or four pages of script changes that they're offering. And you know, like I said, about 20% of those have to do with pushing a recruiting message, pushing uh, the sense that the military uh, does the job and does the job well. Uh, messages about uh, foreign policy and uh, historical matters, uh, which are the most interesting to, to me representing wars in the past and, and military activity, uh, foreign current foreign policy, um, you know, getting rid of anything that's unflattering to the military, anything that's controversial. And this includes internal controversies like racism and sexism in the ranks, sexual assault is a big one. And then, uh, sort of external to the military, um, you know, how they're projecting power across the planet, uh, you know, mention of military bases or, untoward uh, activity, violating international law, torture, assassinations, and things of that nature. Right. And this came up, I remember, in Zero Dark Thirty, uh, where actually it was so bad 
the 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 ideology of it that that actually actually a bipartisan group of senators got got ticked off and sent a letter to the studio. They should have sent a letter to the Pentagon uh, and the CIA. But in Zero Dark Thirty, uh, Zero Dark Thirty made it seem as if torture was key to gleaning information to ultimately find uh, Osama bin Laden. And that was completely unfounded by the facts. And the CIA was working hand in hand uh, with the filmmakers of Zero Dark Thirty to put that movie and put that message out there. So in a a certain sense, uh, the idea of accuracy on the, the, the technicalities of the military is being mixed with, frankly, in a lot of cases, inaccuracy with the history of what's actually going on. I mean, I, I mentioned in the, in the preamble to this uh, about the, the story of 13 days, which is unbelievable, about how the military wouldn't make that uh, uh, work with the filmmakers of that movie because they were accurately representing internal conversations in the White House that were literally on tape between JFK and the uh, national security advisors uh, of the military. So it's it's just a, a dichotomy between we ha- you have to be accurate on how you represent, you know, day-to-day workings of the military, but in some cases you have to be inaccurate in the in what happened in history because because to be accurate about that might embarrass the military. So then the question comes up how often is this happening, right? I mean, if this is a one-off, two-off kind of thing, you know, maybe, you know, again, just playing devil's advocate here, but, you know, okay, fine, it happens once in a while. How often is the military working with Hollywood in such a, a, a close way? Uh, and has it increased in recent years? The scholarly consensus until about five years ago was that there was only a couple hundred films and we didn't have documentation, really full documentation on this. And and uh, my small group of researchers went to work on this and we got into new archives that have opened up recently. But mainly this has come through Freedom of Information Act requests. But um, we found and can confirm now that uh, since World War II, the military and CIA have exercised direct editorial control. That is, they've entered into contractual relationships to support about 2,500 films and television shows. And that number is increasing. Uh, and especially in the last 10 years, I think it's, uh, this is just me observing the documents and, and kind of eyeballing it. Uh, it. It seems to be increasing exponentially, largely because the military is, is not only involved in movies now, it's involved in all kinds of stuff, television, video games, uh, particularly reality TV is, is an exploding genre. So we talk about numbers, uh, you know, I, I can quote 2,500 to you right now. Uh, but if you look at, you know, individual TV episodes, uh, and if you count those, for example, NCIS, they, they approve every single episode of NCIS and all its derivatives. Um, we're up in the range of 10,000, 11,000 productions. Yeah, that's a huge amount of cultural power, cultural propaganda being pumped into the American discourse. And this is what blows my mind. It's without disclosure that, I mean, in the fine print, sometimes there's sort of technical, you have to know what you're looking at, whether, you know, thanks to the Pentagon, thanks to military officials on this base for helping us, et cetera, et cetera. But there's no real disclosure 
to the public, to the viewer, to know that what they're watching in a lot of cases is almost a direct from the Pentagon newsreel when they're watching uh, movies and TV. And this is what this is just what blows my mind because it's one thing when you know you're watching a political ad or you know you're watching propaganda, a kind of filter comes on in your mind and you're at least like, okay, look, I'm, I'm getting the, the Defense Department's perspective here. It's much more insidious when you're when you're when that filter is not there because you don't know that that's what you're watching. I want to turn to the question of course about what kinds of incentives this creates for filmmakers. Because the Pentagon it needs to be underscored is withholding and granting access to its hardware, to its facilities, to its property and and I should underscore public property. That's our property, the government's property. The Pentagon is conditioning access to this uh, upon filmmakers agreeing to these script changes. So what has that done? What kinds of incentives has that created systematically in Hollywood when it comes uh, to making TV shows and movies that are either uh, questioning the military or simply uh, pro-military? Well, for Hollywood and TV, this is not necessarily ideological. This is economic. And as you say, you know, that these these are economic uh, financial gifts to the producers in exchange for control of the script. So we're talking about putting the thumb on the scale, or sometimes I like to think about it as sort of tilting the field of uh, economic opportunity. So as a filmmaker, as a producer, um, you are making calculations about how much a movie will cost, how much bang you will get for your buck. And the military really adds a level of realisticness. You, know, you might call it realism, but that's a difficult word. But realisticness to your uh, to your film and uh, a sense of grit. You know, Michael Bay talks about this, that he, he, he can't do this kind of thing with CGI, you know, even with something like Transformers, uh, that uh, the military lends uh, kind of a credibility uh, to the film that you can't get anywhere else. And in fact, Phil Strubb, who managed the uh, main entertainment media office at the Pentagon, said at one point, um, you know, we're no less busy after the development of, of CGI. It hasn't made a, a lick of difference. And, you know, you look at a film like Top Gun Maverick and, you know, they, they're touting the fact and there's all kinds of think pieces about that. This is a real movie with uh, without CGI, with real planes and real pilots. And so let's just let's just put let's just put it like into Hollywood terms here. So the director comes in, the the studio comes in, and the studio says, "Hey, listen, the military is going to give us these planes for free or or very cheaply uh, to, for us to make a movie like Top Gun." Uh, and if we had to go out and somehow find planes that look like that on our own, we'd have to spend a whole lot more money. And so that is the economic incentive there because the Pentagon is offering effectively a public subsidy to studios, but the catch is that the studios have to submit to the editorial control of the Defense Department, editorial control that is not really explicitly disclosed in any way to the end user, the viewer of this. I mean, tell us the story, for instance, uh, of the contract that was written between the filmmakers of The Hunt for Red October and the, and the Pentagon and, and what the producers of the, of, of the Hunt for Red Octo October actually admitted. 
Yeah, we have uh, some evidence from filmmakers themselves who kind of go rogue and actually talk about this kind of thing from time to time. And and one of them was uh, uh, the uh, producer Mace Newfeld, who produced all of the Jack Ryan series, all of the Tam Tom Clancy Jack Ryan series. And uh, The Hunt for Red October in 1990 was the first of those. And the best, and, by uh, the way. Was, Definitely the best, I, in it, my Yeah, it was, it was a solid film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely well, the best. He, he was speaking to a, a group of uh, uh, naval submarine people. at. Uh, I mean, come on. Alec Baldwin is Jack Ryan. I mean, seriously. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know. Yeah. He's tough. He's tough. <laughs> so, uh, um, you know, he, he was talking to this uh, group of uh, naval submarine people at uh, the Naval Institute and uh, let it slip that uh, he wouldn't have been able to make this film without... Uh, naval cooperation and and Paramount said you know he had a conversation with uh, the the studio about this and Paramount said um, if you don't get cooperation we're just not going to make the movie and I'm going to put that in the contract and you know that's not an ideological decision that's a financial decision uh, because without that I mean take something like uh, Crimson Tide which had to be uh, this, this is Bruckheimer and crew once again uh, which had to be made without military assistance uh, they had to make all these mock-up sets. They had to, you know, kind of hang out a, a, a naval base and catch a submarine in action leaving the port. Um, it, it costs a lot of money. Uh, I think uh, it was Jerry Bruckheimer said that uh, Black Hawk Down would have cost about three or four million dollars more as a film had they not gotten support. And they might not have even been able to make the film at all because they would have had to use Huey helicopters and do all kinds of uh, modifications on them. So you're talking about like, especially films like Top Gun where Bruckheimer said we wouldn't have been able to make this film at all. And probably Top Gun 2 Maverick uh, where, you know, a certain number of films won't get made and those that do cost a lot more. Now you in, in, in an LA Times uh, op-ed, you propose some solutions to this beyond just a, a First Amendment Supreme Court case. What do you think in the short term uh, could be done in a concrete way to at least, if not solve this problem, at least uh, bring more you know, sunshine to what's going on? It really is a question of transparency. I mean, the average military... Uh, movie viewer, people going to the cinema are just are just not going to be privy to the the level and the scope of influence. Um, we we can guess. I mean, you can suggest you go to Iron Man and you can see the military vehicles in the background, or you go to Top Gun and obviously you know there's something going on there. Uh, but the scope is just not going to be available to the average cinema goer. Uh, so there's really nothing that uh, regular people can do about this except demand that some political action be taken. And one of the things that we can do is perhaps demand that all script change suggestions edits the process through which these films go uh, be made transparent, that the documents be made available. That's what I would really love to see. And I just want to ask you about that. Are they, you mentioned before Freedom of Information Act requests, are they not being fulfilled? Are they, are they stonewalling? Are, are the, can, can you, can, can we not get access to those edits. There was a certain era in which I think the office, uh, the entertainment office was naive about this and naive about how much people would object to uh, this kind of operation. And uh, they were uh, more willing, I would say, to release documents. But now, you know, we make requests and 
They'll give us a thousand pages that are completely redacted from start to finish, as if they're trying to send us a message, uh, send a shot across the bow or something like that. And they'll invoke uh, trade secrets as the reason that they can't in, uh, release these kinds of things. <laughs> it's a trade so secret. It's like a commercial mm -hmm. trade. It's like, a, it's like Coca-Cola's recipe or something, like some <laughs> secret, something so secret that the public can't see. You also mentioned some 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 truth some some truth in labeling. Uh, the idea that maybe when you walk into a movie, that if the Pentagon has been involved, that there could be, for instance, a law or a regulation saying the public has to be made explicitly aware of that at the at the beginning of a movie. Yeah, I mean, this is the very least that we can do. You know, since the 1930s, the FCC has required that commercial entities. Uh, put uh, you know a, a, a disclosure statement at the beginning of a, a production that that or at the end that says you know <clears throat> sponsored by Coke or whatever. Um, at, at the beginning of a film, right by the FBI label, you can imagine you know this was sponsored and influenced by the Department of Defense or CIA or NSA or whatever entity had had a hand in the script negotiations. That would be the very least we could do. One last question for you: Your documentary, Theaters of War, it details a lot of this. Just curious what your experience was in making the documentary. And and after making the documentary, I'm curious if you think that that there's enough political impetus to do this, right? I mean, is it like are 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 we so far down the rabbit hole that that there's no way there's no way to really fix this that nobody really cares? Everyone I talk to, everyone, regardless of political persuasion thinks this is a problem. I've gotten very little pushback from regular people. I've gotten no pushback since making the documentary from these institutions themselves. They've been eerily silent about this. But the you know the film, Theaters of War, as you just mentioned, was just released about a week ago. And it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, I wrote that op-ed for the LA Times, and I've received lots of uh, uh, exposure to this idea from that particular statement. Um, and uh, it seems like, uh, you know, the idea that something needs to be done about this extensive level of government influence in, in Hollywood and TV, that idea is sort of taking on a life of its own. So I imagine that in the coming years, you know, it might not be the documentary, it might be the conversation that develops in other ways, um, that uh, uh, there's going to be enough public uh, uh public discussion of this, that, uh, that, that something will need to change. I think it's at a breaking point at, at this current moment. Well, look, I, sir, I sure hope so. I mean, I, I remember researching this for my book. Uh, my book came out in 2011. Uh, and I was, I, I got kind of obsessed with this. And I remember, I, I remember not only being obsessed, but then I, I remember being angry that I had never heard of this. I, I remember, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I, I was like, I, I can't believe, because my book was about the 1980s and growing up immersed in pop culture. And I was like, oh my God, I was programmed as a child in my basement by the Pentagon. But, and I didn't even know I was being programmed. My, my parents definitely didn't know. And, and it's worth adding, it's not just movies. It's TV shows. It's not just movies and TV shows. It's also toys. It's also video games. I mean, the Pentagon video game connection, uh, the Pentagon toy connection, it, it's, it really is like going down a rabbit hole. And, and I think the term military entertainment complex really is the best, most all-encompassing term to understand this. And I just want to thank you for making the documentary because I think to see it in 
on the screen to see how it works on the screen is extremely helpful to explain why this is a problem. I mean, we are all immersed in propaganda, uh, misinformation, disinformation. And part of the problem of all of that on, on, a, on the very surface is disclosure, to at least know when you're being propagandized too. And so if you really start thinking about how much of this is out there without being told it's propaganda, you really do. I mean, I, as a, I, seriously, I look back on my childhood and I felt like I was, I was, I was programmed. I was like the Manchurian candidate style. Like I didn't even know I was being programmed. I mean, maybe that's a little bit of an overstatement. So, so again, thank you so much for making this documentary. It's called Theaters of War. Uh, Roger Stahl, thanks so much for talking with us today. Uh, it's a pleasure being on the show, especially with somebody who's been on the ground floor in this issue for over a decade now. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks a ton, man. Okay, for our lever story today, we're going to be joined by Matthew Cunningham Cook, who wrote a really important piece about how the Biden administration has reaffirmed the highest Medicare premium price hikes in history right before this year's midterm elections. And it's going to be taking the extra money and effectively funneling it to private insurers, private insurers, of course, uh, their executives, big donors to Joe Biden. I'm sure it's gonna work out great for those private insurers, not so sure it's gonna work out so great for American seniors. Matthew, great to talk to you. How's everything going? It's going all right, David. Great story this week, man. It was really, really important. And a story I should mention that no other media outlet really put the dots together on. Uh, it's really important. Uh, in classic Democratic Party fashion, Joe Biden has decided effectively to reaffirm, reconfirm a huge price hike for Medicare recipients and, again, in classic Democratic fashion, doing it right before the midterm elections. Is that about right? And if you can, if it is right, explain to us what we mean by Medicare price hikes. I think a lot of people hear Medicare, they're like, I thought that's you know free health care for people. What are you talking about Medicare price hikes? Yeah, I actually, when I started reporting out this story, I also did not realize that there were premiums for Medicare. They're deducted from people's Social Security or uh, in some rarer cases, their pension check. Um, and... Uh, yeah, uh, what we found is that uh, in June 2021, uh, I believe, um, uh, Biden's uh, Food and Drug Administration approved this untested new drug over the objections of its scientific advisory committee uh, for supposedly treating Alzheimer's, and that resulted in the largest uh, Medicare premium increase in history to cover that cost. Um, but when the public found out about that, uh, Biogen, the creator of the drug, uh, got a lot of heat and they lowered the price of the drug. And then the, the Medicare also got a, a bunch of heat too. And they said, well, considering we really don't know how well this drug actually works, we're going to really limit the instances uh, under which we're going to actually cover it. Um, so I think that's an important detail that I want to unpack for a second, because we at The Lever talked to uh, a guy named Aaron Kesselheim, uh, who was a Harvard, uh, was a Harvard scientist, a doctor, uh, who was advising the FDA. And, and, and this is going to sound in the weeds, but stay with me here for a second, that 
Aaron Kesselheim was one of the people who blew the whistle on this drug, said actually they didn't test it all that well. It doesn't seem to be all that effective. Arguably, it's ineffective and dangerous. And yet the FDA approved it, which put put it on the Medicare's system. And then Medicare essentially, uh, uh, in putting it on its system, jacked up premiums to pay for this medicine, even though the medicine is arguably doesn't work and is dangerous. So there's the, what's interesting about this is that there's there's sort of a uh, these things are related that the big pharma's pressure on the FDA ends up trickling down to Medicare. Medicare covers this drug that may be dangerous or doesn't work, and then Medicare jacks up its premiums. And then at the bottom of the uh, of the situation are seniors who are paying more for Medicare premiums. I mean, is that basically how like it's like shit rolls yeah. downhill and then the, the the final bottom of the hill are premium increases for Medicare seniors because of a drug that may not actually work? Yeah, I think that's right. And then the other component, you know, referencing your earlier point is then, you know, prescription drug companies are the largest advertisers on the corporate media. Uh, and so, I mean, one of the things that, you know, I mean, we've just been talking about here at The Lever is how, you know, when David and I um, uh, were writing investigative and Andrew uh, were writing investigative reporting together seven, eight years ago, you know, for frankly, a publication that had you know, some some real issues. <laughs> International Business <laughs> we were, Times, right? We, we were great, you know, but we would <laughs> routinely get, you know, really significant amounts of, of corporate media pickup um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's really kind of died down uh, uh, in, in this go around, uh, you know, where we still get plenty of pickup on social media, uh, but there's like a corporate media blackout on picking up our reporting. And I think that this is, to me, you know, this, I mean, this, this story did, did very well, as, as you mentioned, David, and we really haven't seen any pickup. And I think it's, it's such a testament to the, the ways in which the overwhelming dominance of prescription drug advertising on the corporate media totally corrodes our coverage. That, that's, coverage a, that's definitely, that's definitely a piece of it. I mean, that's when we published the story, it was, I was sort of shocked that, that it hadn't been covered before and it still continues to not be covered. But I, but let's go back to the details here. Okay, so Medicare decides to cover this drug that is controversial to say the least in terms of whether it works in terms of pharma pressure. Medicare then jacks up people's premiums to pay for it. But then Medicare says, all right, we're not going to cover the, the drug because the drug is too, it's too expensive or the, and the price for the drug, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down. So there are savings to be had that could be passed on to Medicare recipients. In other words, the Biden administration, in theory, could have said, okay, because we're actually not going to cover this drug or the price is going to come down, we're not going to jack up Medicare recipients' premiums by what we said we're going to do. But the Biden administration didn't do that. Why did they not do that? Biden, they, I mean, this is an administration that's totally incapable of putting the interests of ordinary people over corporate interests. Uh, that, to me, is kind of the the base summary here. And I think that's what this story really spoke to is, is it's a very simple story at the end of the day, which is, you know, the rich people are getting all the money <laughs> and, you know, uh, poor and regular folks are getting nothing. Um, so I, that, that to me, I think is, is really kind of what speaks to, but, you know, unless he's called out on it, unless there's an organized pressure campaign, uh, this administration is not going to do the right thing. 
adding insult to injury, or maybe injury to injury, most of the new revenue from this premium increase is going to be funneled to the private insurance industry. We're gonna talk about that after a quick break. Welcome back. I'm here with The Lever's Matthew Cunningham Cook. We're discussing his recent reporting on the Biden administration hiking the cost of Medicare premiums. And now we're talking about where that extra money is going to go. So as I said before the break, the money is ultimately, at least some of it, is going to get to the private insurance industry, to enrich the private insurance industry, uh, an industry that gave $47 million to Joe Biden's campaign. So Matthew, explain how the Medicare premium increases that we've just discussed, how that extra money that will be in government coffers will now be going out to private insurance companies. Yeah, I mean, this is another thing that we've been tracking here, which is the, the enormous growth uh, in Medicare privatization. And so we covered it with uh, this involuntary uh, privatization program called ACO Reach, formerly called Direct Contracting Entities, uh, and we've been covering it with Medicare Advantage as well, where you again you see ads all over the place. Uh, and so, what we found uh, is that Medicare Advantage uh, uh, received. Uh, an 8.5 percent uh, increase uh, for next year, uh, and so this is this is despite the fact that Medicare's own advisory commission, charged with overseeing Medicare Advantage, uh, MedPAC, has found that Medicare Advantage provides less health care at a higher cost uh, for Medicare recipients. Uh, so uh, Biden hands them this huge. Uh, payment increase uh, and then is using the increased premiums of seniors to finance that increase. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's really shitty. Guys, I, I have a question here. When did Medicare, or when did part of Medicare become privatized? I thought I was under the impression that Medicare was public health care or as close as we had. Like, when did this shift happen? Uh, it's a, it's an old, I mean, it started with, with HMOs, uh, uh, and so Nixon, you know, there's one of the Nixon tapes where he was like, he's like Kaiser, you know, from Oakland, he's got this great idea, you know, this, this is what we should be doing, you know, <laughs> and that was, that was really the beginning, uh, uh, was what were these health maintenance organizations in the seventies. But yeah, you know, I mean, just in the last few years, massive metastasization, uh, we're on track by next year to have a majority of Medicare recipients be in Medicare advantage. Uh, and there's a, a massive cottage industry that's emerged of people whose job it is to enroll people into Medicare Advantage plans to manipulate, you know, lonely old people into giving up their gold standard health care coverage in favor of an inferior option. Uh, and that industry is subsidized from top to bottom by the federal government. OK, let's go back to the present here. We just heard the history of how. All this started back with Richard Nixon has been going on for a long time. In late May, HHS Secretary Javier Becerra said in a statement that they'll actually be reducing Medicare premiums, but not until next year, 2023. What do you make of that? Is that total bullshit? Just kind of bullshit? Um, is that real? What do you think? I, I, mean, I mean, you know, I mean, now that 
that you're seeing more and more coverage again. I mean, we're we're in a period of rising deficit hysteria. You know, you, we're right in that 2009 kind of sweet, sweet spot right now where you're you can tell that we're on the cusp of organized mass media hysteria around deficits. Uh, and I think that that always really does it. There clearly is confirmation bias uh, with the high level bureaucrats who make the actuaries who make long-term projections about Medicare and social security, because again, you know, it's like, as soon as I, as soon as you start seeing, you know, the Peterson Institute's name all over the place, all of a sudden, you know, you have these actuaries saying, Oh, you know, yeah, things are actually worse than they are. And it's like, huh, didn't seem to hear about this when the tax cut and jobs act was being passed. Right. 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 So, (laughs) so if if what what I hear Um, you saying is, is that with, hysteria about deficits that now that the premiums are in place generating the revenues that they're generating which of course then is going out to the private insurance industry that that the deficit hysteria oh we have to keep getting the, these revenues will li- could mean that the premium increases will simply stay in place in the name of quote unquote balancing the budget yeah, it's very hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube. And then, you know, I mean, it's right now this announcement came, you know, four months before an election, you know, <laughs> so that's the perfect time to to for Biden to both do something not politically moronic for once, uh, one and two, you know, for, you know, advocates who were asking Biden for this this premium reduction uh, to hold his feet to the fire. So they're, 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 those two things combined means that, I mean, anybody who's, who's observed politics for more than a year in the U.S., you know, can reasonably guess that it's like, oh, well, asked to choose between rich people getting more money and poor people having less money. <laughs> well, those are the same. But, you know, asked to choose between rich people having more money and rich people having less money. Oh, what's, what's going to happen, you know, in, in January after an election? <laughs> right. After, after the Democratic Party is likely to get absolutely shellacked like they did in 2010. Yeah. And, yes. and, and it's, it's worth recounting that history for, for one quick second here. In 2010, after Democrats got shellacked, they pivoted almost immediately to the Social Security Commission, the, the so-called Entitlement Commission to try to cut Social Security and Medicare. Uh, so w- we have been here before and so this really does feel incredibly familiar. So I want to ask you the last question. If everyone in listening to this, folks are interested in pushing back against this new policy or simply want to protect the seniors in their own lives, is there anything they can do? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that there needs to be some more education to Congress that a lot of seniors are skeptical of Medicare Advantage. I mean, that's one thing is that I, I, I clearly don't think that message is getting through, that there's a large organized critical mass of seniors who are very skeptical about this. Um, <coughs> so uh, I, I think that that's number one. Uh, I think number two is, frankly, you know, I mean, give us more money so we can hire, you know, a dedicated Medicare <laughs> reporter. <laughs> to there work you go. With me, you know? Right. I mean, I will say I, the 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 amount that this story traveled from the lever all across social media i mean it was it was really extraordinary and i think it speaks both to the uh, the fact that 
corporate media just isn't reporting that, and therefore there is a demand for this kind of reporting. And, I, and you really nailed the story. And so, Matthew, great work on this story. Thanks for doing it, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. For our final story today, we're going to zero in on the local. We'll look at how the trend of corporate interests buying Democratic primaries to try to crush progressive candidates isn't just happening in congressional races, but also under the radar in state races. I'll be talking with Elizabeth Epps, who recently won a landmark police brutality case against the city of Denver and is now running in a hotly contested Democratic primary for a seat in Colorado's state legislature. Elizabeth is backed by Colorado's Working Families Party, Denver DSA, as well as several labor unions. Corporate interests have funneled big money into the race to try to defeat her. Hey, Elizabeth, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. That's good to see you, too. Um, let's start out with your background for any of our audience who don't know you, don't know about your candidacy yet. Let's just, just tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to run for an office like state legislature. Sure. So I am, am Elizabeth Epps, and I'm running to represent us in the state house in House District 6. Get to say that often, and I like it every time I get to. Uh, I wasn't born in Colorado, but I got here just as soon as I could. I came out here after law school to be a public defender with a, the grand vision of helping my folks get free and stay free, which is still the work I'm doing. Uh, I'm an abolitionist, which short version of that is it means that I believe just as a guiding principle that everyone deserves to be healthy, safe, and free. And so I commit to doing the policy work that gives people that which they need to be healthy, safe, and free. And uh, in terms of this race for the state legislature, I've seen firsthand, and anyone who's paying attention has seen uh, examples of really good things coming out of state legislatures in recent years and some pretty terrifying, disastrous things coming out of state legislatures. There's a lot of power at the state house and in the state Senate. That's where I want to keep uh, getting work done. And last year, when it was clear that there's going to be an open seat where I'm living, a lot of community members, including the current incumbent, encouraged me to run, asked me to run, voluntold me to run. And I agreed. So before we get to the details of the race, I, I also want to talk a little bit about um, your historic legal victory in this police brutality case against the city and county of Denver, because I think that's important for people to know uh, also more about who you are and the kind of work you've done. Just tell us what happened briefly in that case and what the outcome was. Certainly. So it's actually pretty close to exactly two years ago that uh, just a couple blocks from where I am now at the state capitol, I and others were tear gassed, shot with rubber bullets, shot with so-called less lethal projectiles uh, while we were peacefully protesting police brutality around the murders of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and, and others. And uh, in a demonstrable, repeated way. My constitutional rights were violated, First Amendment, Fourth Amendment. And so we, we did what you what one of the things you can do. We filed a lawsuit. It took two years for that case to come to trial. You mentioned it being historic. The case is Epps et al. versus City and County of Denver et al. It's historic in a few ways. It's historic because it's while there were many lawsuits filed in the summer of 2020 or in the months that followed, this is the first one, as far as I know, I'm pretty confident it's the first one that actually went to trial, went to verdict, as opposed to settling out of court. Uh, we we wanted that proverbial day in court. We wanted a, an open trial where all of Colorado could see exactly what the Denver police had done to us. And, uh, and we won. We prevailed at trial. There were 12 plaintiffs in our class action case. My, my name is the lead name, but there's 12 of us. We were awarded a jury verdict. What's what's a bigger deal about that? Um, the total award was was fourteen million dollars. 
what is a big deal about that is that, well, I'll speak for myself. It was never about the money for me. What I wanted my city to do was to change uh, practice. Um, it was very clear that we weren't just harmed by rogue one-off officers who were acting outside of their training. To the contrary, right? The heart of our lawsuit, it's called a Manel claim. The heart of that lawsuit is saying officers did exactly as they were trained to do. They did exactly what they were prepared to do, what they were funded to do, what they were armed and equipped and, and guided to do. How do we know it? Both because so many of them did it. But David, the other reason we know it is because they weren't disciplined after, right? So ha had had the city thought they were wrong, the city would have intervened at some, some sooner point. So in, in my work, in the work of helping our neighbors be healthy and safe and free, I tend to, to come to it from three lenses, direct action, litigation and legislation. And, and each of these is, is equally important in their way. And so the lawsuit, Epps versus Denver, is that is that litigation prong. Um, I'm, of course, thrilled with the verdict. Uh, it's hard to sit through day after day of trial, particularly when you're trying to run a campaign and are off the campaign trial trail for three weeks. Uh, but it was worth it. So you're toggling between the campaign trail. You're toggling between the campaign trail and trial at, at a certain point in your campaign. You're like literally in the in the courthouse about a police brutality case, and then you're leaving and you're knocking doors and and in a state legislative race, right? That's literally what happened. In 15 of the toughest days to be out of uh, circulation, you know, you can't make calls, you can't have coffee with voters. I was was in federal court from sunup to sundown, but it was worth it, right? It's 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 important to me singularly as a plaintiff, but it's also important as a representation of my community of the same way that I stand up for myself and that I stand up for protesters and those whose rights have been violated is exactly the same energy and commitment and discernment that I'm going to bring to the state legislature. So so in, in your race now for state legislature, there is a lot of money flowing into this race. And and to be clear, I, it's, a, it's a small race in the sense of, I mean, look, my wife is a state legislature, legislator. I, I, what I mean by small is it's a relatively somewhat small district in comparison to a whole state or in comparison even to a congressional district. It's a big race. It's important here in Colorado. But the amount of money that has flowed into this one sort of comparatively small state legislative race is kind of incredible and has become a local media story unto itself. We've we've reported here and, and talked a lot about the national effort by big money interests to come into congressional races to try to buy Democratic primaries. And it seems to me that this is a, a, a local or municipal version of the same thing. I would ask you, can you tell us a little bit about what kinds of money, uh, where the sources of money are from that are flooding into this race? I mean, we—I've seen it referred to as there may be a half a million dollars spent against you in a Democratic primary for state legislature. So I want to hear from you about where you think this money's coming from. What do you think it's motivated by? So, so the beautiful thing about certain aspects of public records, and in Colorado we have Tracer, is that I don't even have to tell you what I think about where it's coming from. I, I can tell you because I know, right? I can tell you what I can see and what I can read. Um, it, you make a, a good point when you talk about how you, you more often report on the federal level, the national level, money flowing into these congressional races. It's important to be clear about where that bench comes from, though, right? Where's the pool of people who are picked from to be appointed for to be our next Congress folks and, and senators? They, they tend to very often are former state legislators, right? So that, that pipeline to that accepting that money is one that starts early. Where the money is coming from in my race, and, and you use the phrase uh, half a million or $500,000 spent against me, 
that's accurate. I think it's probably a low estimate, but but it's important that we name. It's not just against me, right? It's 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 five hundred thousand dollars or more against progressive values. It's a half a million dollars against working folks, against renters, against uh, organized labor. That's who it's against, right? Against teachers and public school children. That's who that money uh, is coming in against. Who it's coming in from are uh, groups that are the how do I say it delicately? It's coming in from the groups who are the biggest impediments to progress on the issues that most voters in HD6 in Denver and Colorado care about. So specifically, right, one of the most alarming to me is the Colorado, the statewide Chamber of Commerce. Uh, in their history, the Chamber of Commerce has never weighed in on a primary. They certainly endorse and support candidates in general elections, but they've never endorsed before in primaries. And in this instance, they've endorsed 11 candidates statewide, seven Republicans and four Democrats. And one of the one of them, so-called Democrats, is the one who's running against me. Their money is, is outsized and they don't do that because they just have a favorite. They do that because of a vested interest in the outcome. Uh, in Denver, where affordable housing, to call it a crisis is, a, is an understatement of epic proportions. Absolutely. Right? But people are being priced out, people with working folks, much less folks who are already on the margins economically, right, with rent increases of 30 and 40 and 45 percent, just astronomical numbers. And the biggest impediment to that, there's several corporate interests, but one is absolutely the 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 Denver and the statewide apartment lobby, right? That's a group that's given $10,700, the absolute maximum that you can to my opponent. Uh, I don't know how my opponent may personally feel about affordable housing, but I know how she's free to vote or not in this case. So you ask about those groups. Uh, when you look at, for example, the Chamber of Commerce, this isn't about this isn't about people that work at these organizations and individuals. This is, I invite anyone to look at the Colorado Chamber of Commerce's website, look at their policy positions, look at the successes that they brag about, right? That they're proud to have intervened and stopped paid family medical leave. They're proud to interrupt uh, regulations being put in place around greenhouse gases. They're proud to, to interrupt and impede collective bargaining rights. And this is the money that is pouring in, not against me as an individual, right? I'm feeling the brunt of it in some practical ways, but it's against all those things that are all, should be a part of the democratic agenda. And what it really, the nature of those groups, when and how deeply they are playing in, what it really amplifies for us, right, is that there are certain interests who need the status quo, right? It is working just fine for them, right? But for working folks, folks like myself and my family and my neighbors, and, and most people truly in Denver, Colorado, those special interests, what they represent, are representing a way of life that is not working for us. We're being priced out. We're being driven out. And, and the fact that it will be a small, it, it will be a, a low estimate if it comes in at around half a million dollars. And can I just add one thing about that? Please. Is that as I'm a Democrat, I've been a Democrat for a long time, and uh, there's something really special that we talk a lot about as Democrats holding majorities and the importance of majorities in the House and the Senate. And of course, I agree with that. And I agree with that deeply. But it becomes really curious to look in, in my seat in a, in a race where it's a plus 70 or something like that Democratic seat, a seat where the woman who wins is going to have this job for the next eight years if she wants it, to see the money that is pouring in in this race uh, in, in, in opposition to a progressive candidate, me, and in opposition to progressive values. If what we cared about truly as Democrats was holding our majority statewide, well, that's a half a million dollars that my future colleague in the mountains could really use, right? That's a half a million dollars that down on the, you know, the Southern part of the state or on the Eastern Plains in communities where they're fighting to hold a Democratic seat. Imagine what that half a million dollars could have gone to do if what we really cared about was a Democratic majority and, excess, and it suggests that there's too many people in my party 
who aren't concerned about a Democratic majority. They're concerned about a conservative, moderate, centrist majority. And, and I think it's important to point out, uh, not only that it, is it a Democratic district you're running in, but it is, at least for now, it is considered a relatively blue state, a Democratic state. There are Democratic majorities in the legislature. There's a Democratic governor. And I am, in my view, I think corporate interests understand that they, that while a state may be Democratic, they have a vested financial interest in keeping a kind of status quo democratic majority in a legislature as opposed to a progressive or change-oriented democratic majority in a democratic state. In other words, that the just because a state is blue or a district is blue or a state legislature is blue doesn't mean that there that that big money interests aren't playing. I mean, you can look at New York, for instance, like, you know, all the corruption that comes out of New York, which is a blue state. And it's the same thing playing out here in Colorado. It's the same thing playing out all over the country. Now, I want to ask you about the local media coverage of this. In the congressional races that this same dynamic is playing out in, because it's their congressional races, they they are higher profile. The the local media covers them somewhat. There's relatively little local media about your race, just like in other races like this where the same dynamic is playing out at the state legislative level or the city council level. Same thing, not very much media. But this race has now finally generated at least some attention because it's such a contested primary. So much money is coming in. And I want to play a clip from the local Denver News to give folks an idea of how they're framing this race. Epps, the farther left of the two left candidates, would add to a growing roster of progressives at the state capitol, a far left wing of the Democrats who have at times fought their own party as well as Republicans. So I want to ask you about this. They, the, that was Nine News, uh, the NBC News affiliate here. They are framing what you're pushing as, quote, far left. I want to hear your reaction to why they're, you think they're calling you a, quote, far left candidate, not just left, but far left. And whether you think that attack or that framing is fair, whether you think it could hurt your candidacy, what do you make of that? I mean, I know my thoughts on it, but I want to hear yours. Well, it's not going to surprise you to learn that I have a couple thoughts about that. In that same piece, I appreciated that in in the written companion piece, the, the intro sentence describes us quite starkly as Uh, myself being the progressive and my opponent being the centrist. I appreciated that was completely accurate. So this this framing of far left, right? There's a couple things. I, I will say that before running for office uh, and now, the framing itself doesn't offend me, right? These labels are somewhat arbitrary to me. If it is considered far left to believe that your access to health insurance should not be dependent upon your employment status, okay, right? If it is far left to believe that you should have access to abortion care and reproductive justice rights, regardless of where you live in the state or whether or not you're employed, sign me up, right? If it So in, in, I'm much more interested in, in what they're attaching to it. Um, because these labels shift over over time. Even just the course of this this campaign, we saw uh, my opponent and those who oppose me framing themselves as the middle and the ones who could work across the aisle. And once they're listening to HD6 voters and hearing that HD6 voters are saying, maybe you should be a little less bipartisan. Maybe since we have a majority, we should get things done. Now the framing is that they're, they're attempting to say that I'm less progressive and just more far left. So I'm not offended by it on its on its superficial level. I think that the voters, particularly in a uh, in the relatively you know, confined area that is Denver are going to be smart enough and nuanced enough to Google and to Google and to, to do their own work about that. I think that what's what's more important, right, is recognizing or what's as important is recognizing that 
you know, insert lecture about what happens when you have a duopoly in a political system, right? We can't go, go too far into that here, but we can recognize, and you're a scholar of these things, and know that in, in, in Canada, in France, in the UK, in many places in the world, my opponent and I wouldn't even be in the same political party, right? In, in no world would we, any more than, uh, than you know, Representative Ocasio-Cortez and President Biden would be in the same political party. So from my, my vantage, right, as a Democrat who's working hard every day to win a Democratic primary, I'm glad that we have this big tent to the extent that it means that our what they want to call far left values, which are progressive values, which are, you know, the values I hold, that they have a chance and that they're winning. And, you know, you know, we're winning because they're dumping in a half a million dollars at least of money to, to crush it. So the framing, perhaps it should bother me more than it does. Uh, but I think uh, I, I have a lot of confidence in people's ability, particularly at this level, to think past those labels and not be scared. Um you know, the status quo isn't working. So while it's not my favorite framing, I think a more accurate one is that I'm a progressive Democrat from the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. I recognize that where exactly that is right now isn't where it would have been 10 years ago and it'll shift in 10 years. So I'm definitely more interested in what policies are attached. Um, and I guess I would just add to that that I certainly get asked a, a version of this question, right? Is HD6 ready for fill in the blank? And someone will suggest something about, you know, being too far left. And I'll invite them to tell me, tell me what is the specific policy you're concerned about? Like which, which thing that I'm talking about, healthcare, drug policy, which, which of the things are you concerned is too far left? And often when I get a response, my, my suggestion is just, well, have you, have you visited, and I know you haven't, but have you visited the Denver Democratic Party platform recently? Or have you visited the Colorado State Democratic Party platform? The things I'm advocating for and not just advocating for, but, you know, achieving on things we're getting done in the legislature and in community are the things that we as Democrats say we want. We say we don't want to return to a war on drugs. We say we support labor unions. We say we support renters' rights and tenants' rights. So it's a curious framing to suggest that to follow through on one's promises is itself far left. I mean, I, I am kind of triggered by the far in far left in the sense of I, I feel like that is a term that kind of corporate legacy establishment media right. uses to try to marginalize people, right? I actually don't believe that centrists are actually in the center of where public opinion of is. Not. And I think this is all kind of linguistic, Orwellian linguistic um, uh, framing to try to marginalize what are broadly speaking very very popular positions and popular policies and and by the way I don't think I I know the reporter who who framed you that way Marshall Zellinger he's an NBC reporter he's a he's a good reporter he's you know I don't think it's conscious I don't think it's 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 bad faith or motivated out of any conscious desire to to insult you or anyone else who where, where that term is used but I think it's almost subconscious like. Folks who want uh, um, something like Medicare for all or folks who want really affordable housing programs, those are on the fringe, on the far left, as opposed to it being a mainstream position. And it's also a reflection of what uh, of what we consider to be uh, mainstream. Now, I, I want to ask you, just so people understand how vicious these races can get. And again, we're talking about, you know, Big money interests trying to buy uh, Democratic primaries in, uh, and it should be added, in Democratic areas where the winner of the primary is going to be the presumptive winner of the general. There was this push-pull controversy uh, a few weeks ago. There was a group, uh, a business group, uh, an independent expenditure committee. It did a push-pull targeting primary voters that included some not-so-veiled shots at your political history, at your character. It was very personal. Some have accused the poll of being 
including, again, a push poll, not only a push poll, but overtly racist and including outrageous falsehoods. I'm just curious if you can explain what the hell happened. What do you think that whole episode showed about the larger point we're talking about here about how, you know, big money interests coming into a local community to try to put the thumb on the scale of an election? So so I'm going to gladly answer this question because it's posed from you. And I will tell you that when I've been asked about this in, in recent months, I'm quick to ask uh, the the asker if they're asking my opponent about it. Right. She's the one who should be asked about it. Right. Her supporters should be the ones who are asked about it. Um, but that said, I do have some thoughts. So here's the thing. Right. It, it, the, the framing of a push poll. And I've had to talk a few people down from the ledge who are really upset who, who received this. It, it's not a, this thing that they sent is not a poll at all. I did see some screenshots of it. The simplest way you not know that it's not a real poll is if the question is posed and it said, if you learned this fact about this candidate, <laughs> would it make you, right? The options are, would it make you much less likely to vote for them, less likely to vote for them, or no change? The poll didn't even include options of would it make you more likely. So it's just like the, superficially, like they're not even trying. They're just right. skirting the boundaries right. of defamation law and being not nice people. So that's sort of number one. Number two is um, I have not actually seen it and seen, seen the site, seen the things associated. I've seen the screenshots that people people sent. And I basically have a safety plan with my with my team, which is, you know, like if there's something about my family or something that I need to see, you let me know. Otherwise, y'all handle it. And let me run my race. That said, here, here are some things that we know, right? The very things, some of the very things that make me most fit for this job, right? Which is overwhelmingly things of having survived, having overcome, having gotten through, uh, you know, systems of racist policing, having been over prosecuted, having been over policed, having been over over surveilled to survive them and be upright and coming to claim what is ours as progressive leaders, right? That is offensive to certain folks' sensibilities, right? So I understand that that, that shakes them. They've been used to buying elections without it being this much work for a really long time. Not all elections and not all candidates, but that that has been what they've been doing. Um, the, the few things I saw, it, it's laughable to me. I understand why as journalists folks would need to, but to suggest that something like might be racist. Well, no, it's just racist. It's just racist. Right. It's just that's it. I think about the little meme with the little boy who's like, that's racist. Like, that's exactly <laughs> right. what I'm thinking about right. in that case. Um, and it's. I, I, I want to say that it's okay. What, and by this, I don't mean that it doesn't hurt or that it's not temporarily, momentarily distracting, right? I'd rather be talking with you about this with another issue, but it's it's a recognition that when folks, and I'm just going to flatten the issue a little bit, when they cannot challenge you on actual experience, and when they cannot, for example, my opponent refuses to debate me, right? When, when you cannot actually challenge on, on substance or on fitness or on preparation, you're going to do the things we learned in, you know, high school name calling. And, and it's, it's, it does hurt. Like, I can't pretend that it's, I mean, I'm, I'm human and I'm vulnerable and it doesn't feel good, but it doesn't scare me. Uh, I, I believe that my neighbors are much sharper than this. I'm disappointed that this is still the way uh, folks behave. And I'm disappointed that as Democrats, um, there's certain folks who have really missed an opportunity here to live their values, right? They, they walk around with their pride flags and their, their Black Lives Matter pins. But like when a Black queer woman is publicly under attack for things that are blatantly racist and homophobic and other things, they're conveniently silent. Um, so that's okay. Uh, okay in the sense that it's not going to be the thing that de derails us. Uh, but it's it's certainly unfortunate. And, and I think that one thing that's really important to point out, David, is is the attachment to the financial, to the financial issue. Right. Right. Absolutely. One of the yeah. least popular things 
but most important things that I'm going to work on in the legislature, least popular amongst my colleagues, some of my colleagues, I should say, but very popular amongst the electorate, is true, meaningful, deep, substantive campaign reform, campaign finance reform at the state level. And you, in leading into this last question, you mentioned about uh, like your reaction to the word far left. And to me, that's connected to this issue, the, the push-pull, the, the negativity, and the funding in this way. When I say my, my being not offended by the, the phrasing of far left, I should have clarified, I think it's a not inaccurate representation of where certain elected officials are, right? So as a progressive, if you are progressive and you are unapologetically on the side of working folks and renters and teachers unions, you are in the relative far left of the 65 members of the state house of representatives, right? Of those 65 people, right? That's going to put me, there's going to be four of us over there, right? With a, with a good cadre of a dozen, right? Who are fighting to get in our ranks and we'll welcome them in. But you're absolutely right that amongst the electorate, it's not far left at all to believe that people shouldn't be evicted because they lost a job during COVID, right? It's not far left at all amongst actual voters and community members to think that you should have health care even if you can't produce labor for a company. And so in connection to the poll, and while it is... Um, it's hurtful, right? Things about it are hurtful. It also is something that it's not going to be the thing that derails us. And the folks who are responsible for it, I'll let them sit down with me at lunch and apologize and we can still do good things for, they can, right? And we can still move, you know, we can do good things for Colorado. So that's how I see it. Uh, and, and a good segue, this is a good segue to the, to the last question that I have for you, which is as with the experience of dealing with something as an example, like that push poll or dealing with this flood of money and all of the ways that it uh, vilifies and demonizes a candidate like you. Again, you're, you're alone in this in this particular race, but you're among other people, uh, everyone from Nina Turner, Summer Lee. I mean, I could just go through the list of candidates right now, uh, Democratic candidates in Democratic areas who have faced big money attacks in blue districts, in blue states, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to ask a, a personal question, which is, what would you tell people who are listening right now? What would you tell them about the personal experience and, and how difficult it is to get involved in politics in the way you've gotten involved in the sense of running for office, putting yourself out there? I mean, what are the takeaways? What are the things you think people either don't understand enough about the process itself uh, and, and how difficult it can be? So I, I hope that you will invite me back on in, in July or August. <laughs> I get through this and, and, and I think I'll have a more nuanced answer. I recognize that in thinking about what I would say to someone who, not just someone who's considering, but someone who I would want to consider, right? Because I think about that person. Um, very often I am told by supporters online and off, they'll say warm versions of things like that. Uh, and I'm just, I don't mean to be not humble, but this is what they say. They'll say, you know, you're the first person running for office that I've trusted in a long time, or you're the first time I've donated since Barack, or the first time I've knocked doors since whoever, and I and they're excited. And they're talking in this singular way. And what, what I remind them is, no, there's some fighters at our Capitol. I know them. I can name them. There are fighters at our Capitol. They need backup. <laughs> they need backup. They need cover. They need support amongst their colleagues and amongst community. And so I too, right, I'm not putting any cart before that proverbial horse, but we get through this next three weeks and win this election, right, to win the primary election and then on to the general. I'm already thinking ahead because the policies that we're going to work to implement when I'm in office are going to be ones that are going to need more progressives coming up behind. So that's my intro to say, there's an emotional part of me that says, run, don't do this. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and there's a self-interested part that says, 
Uh, if you are called and you can do it, try, right? Because there are more than us of them. And by us, I mean folks who have these, these values that you so rightly point out are not that far left at all, right? Um, in this Democratic primary, you, you mentioned uh, folks, folks taking issue with my past commentary about my beloved political party, right? The party's not going to save us, right? I'm a Democrat and I'm proud, I can't say the word, proud to be a Democrat, but the party itself is not going to save us. We're going to save us, right? We need independents and unaffiliated to win our races, right? To help us guide policy. And so my advice to someone who is considering is please do because we need you. Uh, but I also recognize, and I'm, I'm just going to phrase this as delicately as I am, as I, as I am able, is my path to being this position. The fact that at this point in the race, both my, the, the other side and I have both raised about at last report, something like $160,000 each, where mine is with an average donation of $45, something like that. And no PAC money, right? No, no corporate PAC money, no, no special interest. Hers is half of it is that money. My path to being able to do this is not terribly replicable. <laughs> so I recognize that the organic way that I came to this isn't necessarily everyone's path, but I think what it does represent is a very strong indication that when community selects one of our own, community surrounds and community donates and community knocks doors and community pours into you emotionally and will get it done. So part of my work in the next two years is to help find and mentor uh, and, and, and help those people get, get to where I plan to be. And I will say that, you know, folks not unlike a legislator you know well have, have been there when I've needed to cry and get through it. And we've got a lot ahead. So it's a long-winded way of saying, I don't know that in good faith I could tell particularly a black woman, that I could tell her she needs to do this because I think she doesn't owe us anything. But if there's a way that she safely and bravely can navigate it, has the emotional fortitude, then I want her to know that I'm going to be one of the people holding her hand and, and helping her through to the other side. Well, I can just tell you, our, our family, when we went through a primary like this a couple of years ago, it was probably the hardest thing our family, our entire family, ever went through. Uh, and it was Emily. And I, I just, I'm, I'm even thinking back to it. I'm getting a little bit choked up because it was so, it was like all the gray hair on my head is from uh, <laughs> that race. I mean, I think I aged like five years on that campaign or 10 years. It's, it is a brutal, brutal process when it's a super contested primary like it is. And I just, you know, I want to thank you for for being in the arena, if you will, and being willing to do it. I, and and I, should, I should add one last thing. Where can our audience that's listening, where can they go find you and support your campaign? Well, please do, and I need you to. Um, and so we've got just a few weeks to, to, to win this, and we will together. My website is elizabethepps.com, just my first and last name, no Z. Don't go. To, I don't know who the Elizabeth with an Z is, but E L I S A B E T H E P P S dot com, and uh, it has the ways to get involved. We are canvassing every single day, right? We've talked a lot in our time together about about the opposition and their outsized corporate funding and outside money, uh, but we we have what they don't have, right? We have. People use the word grassroots, like we are that. We have people power, we have volunteers, and we are winning, and that's why they're so scared. So we need everyone who can um, to sign up both to volunteer and to donate. Donating helps us get our message out in these last few weeks. And even in terms of volunteering, if you're in Denver, I want you with me on doors. If you're not in Denver, you can help us phone bank, remote text, and do other things to support the campaign. Um, this truly is people powered, and it is very much what has uh, corporate interest shook because they, they can't outspend that. So. Appreciate any help that folks can give. The primary is June 28th here uh, in Colorado. Elizabeth Epps, good luck to you. Thanks so much for taking time today. Thank you good so to much. You. Appreciate you.
That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Lever Time Premium get to hear our bonus segment. This week's was the best of Lever Live, where we took questions from our listeners live on the air. You can join us every Monday night at 7 p.m. Eastern for Lever Live. Go to levernews.com slash leverlive for all the details. Listeners can subscribe to Lever Time Premium by heading over to levernews.com. When you subscribe, you get... When you subscribe, you also get access to all of the Lever's website, our weekly newsletters, and our exclusive live events. And that's all for the criminally low price of just 8 bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. One last favor. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and write up a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. And make sure to, he- and make sure to head over to levernews.com and check out all of the reporting our team has been doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat. Oh, 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 oh,